Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at theasc.com. Welcome. My name is Ian Marks, and in this episode of the American Cinematographer Podcast, I'll be speaking with visual effects supervisor Danny Dimian and CG supervisor Michael Lasker about their work on the computer-animated film Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Into the Spider-Verse tells the story of Brooklyn teenager Miles Morales, who's gifted with great powers after he's bitten by a radioactive spider and great responsibility when he's drafted to a team of alternate reality spider people to save New York City from the villainous kingpin. This is a bit of a departure from the kinds of films American Cinematographer normally covers, though in the past we've done magazine stories on the Star Wars Rebels TV series and Pixar's WALL-E. These exceptions are made when the film or series in question demonstrates a significant advancement in or departure from conventional motion picture design. From color to composition, lighting, and overall form, Into the Spider-Verse attempts something radically different, not just with superhero movies, but with the cinematic medium itself. And over the next 50 minutes, we'll dive into the origins of its production. Danny and Mike, thanks for being here today. I'd like you to introduce yourselves so people will know who's who. Yeah, this is Danny Dimian. I'm the visual effects supervisor at Imageworks. And I'm Michael Lasker, and I was a CG supervisor on Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Great, thank you. Sure. Let's start off by talking a little bit about the vision behind this film. Well, the script was by Phil Lord. Uh, you know, I think, I think they were really excited about the idea that if we're going to make a... Um, uh, an animated feature um, that Spider-Man would would be the first, the you know the perfect first animated feature, and they were really excited about the Miles Morales story and how it all plays together in in a multiverse where there's all these other worlds that come to play as well. Yeah, and I was really excited to come on when I heard they were making an, an animated Spider-Man movie. It just it just really jumped out. And over the whole making of it, we all had to kind of pinch ourselves that we were actually making this movie. It was just so amazing and fun. But the, the whole story, you know, it's such a great coming of age story that I think it kind of, you know, it kind of resonates with a lot of people. And actually, from a, from a story point of view, one of the things that, that was really appealing about this is the Spider-Man story has always been about the fact that uh, people can relate to Spider-Man. And, you know, this takes it even further with a 13-year-old boy who's coming of age at the same time. And um, it really plays up the idea that everybody can, can wear the mask with the fact that there's so many different characters as well. Yeah, and I think another great thing about it was just the diversity aspect of it. Him being Afri half Af African-American and half Puerto Rican, it really it just resonated with a lot of people. Yeah, it really all did start with a r really good story. The two of you were part of a huge animation team. Was the production structured like a traditional computer animated film? Yes and no. Um, you know, Mike and I have worked with each other for a really long time. We first started together. I think the first project we did together was Surf's Up. And we've done many animated features since then. I think what made this one different was partially the scale of it, uh, but also the idea that, that from the very beginning, Chris and Phil wanted this to look like something people had not seen before. We were asked to really try to reconsider how we did everything in every department. And right from the beginning, we knew that we wanted to do something that did not look like what people had seen before. So that led us to a variety of different pipeline and procedure changes. So in that respect, I think it's the most different structure that we've ever had here and the most flexible structure for any CG feature that, that we've ever done. Yeah, we had, I think, about 800 people in the end uh, in the crew. And we did try to follow our typical pipeline with, with layout and animation and effects and lighting. But as Danny said, we had to add all these additional aspects to the pipeline to really achieve the look that they were after. But I think having that pipeline in place to begin with really helped. But yeah, we really had to kind of break everything down and reinvent how we did almost everything 
when you do these types of movies, you typically rely on certain principles. Yeah. And, you know, how you render eyes, how you render skin and hair and how you do lens flares and motion blur. And we kind of had to go back and do everything completely different than we had before. People often fall back into into ways that they know how to do things. So to instill that exploration or, or to instill a culture of of exploring and to make people really feel safe in that exploration, we we kind of coined a, t- a term for the show where we would constantly remind people, if it ain't broke, break it. <laughs> um, so we we uh, really wanted artists to show things um, that they pushed it far enough that they actually were able to show, look, I went too far. But somewhere along the lines, we we ended up finding things that, that were exactly what we wanted. Yeah, Chris and Phil's biggest thing was they, they wanted to get away from stuff that had been done before. But anytime it started to look like it was CG, they're like, no, you know, do go the opposite way. Things like the way we shaded, it was, you know, typically very soft shading with our ray tracer. We wanted to have it more hard and more crisp and more like graphic. So anytime they saw a semblance of CG, you know, they kind of sent us in the opposite direction. I think that was one of the biggest aspects that made it stick out from what anyone had seen before. And I mean, Chris and Phil are pretty sophisticated. Uh, they've done a lot of animation. So it turned out that in order to get them excited about something, we had to push things to a point where when they saw the imagery, not only did they like it, but they couldn't understand how it was made. That was really our biggest task was how do we create um, a movie where it, first of all, it's something no one's ever seen, and it's hard to even dissect what you're looking at. So in the end, we, we created a number of tools and layers that together kind of formed this picture. What about these pipeline and procedure changes? Where did you start? It definitely started with us looking at what's special about comic books and about illustration. And so, you know, we, we poured over comic books and all our favorite illustrators like Alex Toth and especially Jack Kirby. And, um, you know, there, there was always this feeling of the artist's hand in the work. There was always these, these imperfections from drawing and these design choices that were based on what looked good instead of maybe what was accurate. It all started with that. We definitely changed the way we shade from how the shaders themselves uh, were written and, and what controls there were compositing played a, a, a much bigger role in this. Like you'll see in the movie that a lot of the material shading that you might get or the way materials look in more traditional movies, hair, skin, we still have a differentiation, but we stay away from things that you would not illustrate like smooth grads. In exchange for that, we use all the things that you would when you're illustrating or even when comics are printed like half toning and line hatching and and especially drawing of the lines on the face for expression. So really every part of the pipeline was reconsidered, reconfigured, but all from the point of view of of that initial inspiration. And that is the beauty and the freshness of having the artist's hand show in the work. Yeah, the trick with, with CG is getting away from that computer perfection. You know, so it's very easy, like Danny was saying before, to kind of fall back into what you do traditionally, whereas you know, kind of what you're, you're not getting out of the box, but what you're getting out of the render, changing how we shade it, going with more quantization, more kind of anime style shading, adding ink lines, adding those, those screen tones that Danny was talking about to break up the shading, getting that kind of handcraftedness in there. That's what really um, separated what we typically do in our pipeline for this movie than from others. And it kind of made us feel a little exposed at the beginning because what we had realized is you know, with all the technology advances that we have these days in um, computer animation, sometimes when you're not sure what to do, you can just fall back on a lot of complexity, a lot of stuff going on. And, and you know, there's a spectacle to that, obviously, but it didn't really fit into what we wanted to do. And oftentimes it was quite a bit of work for us to try to figure out how do we get that same impact out of just design and style if we're not going to do the realism or complexity or uh, accuracy that you might be used to. And it, and it was a gamble too. I mean, um, we, we went for a while. I mean, it, until the first teaser came out, we really didn't know how the public was going to react to it. To see characters whose eyes look different, whose skin tone, it, 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 you know, the, the way it's rendered is different. How the animation is different. It, it's not smooth. It's on twos or on threes. 
it was just really interesting to see how the, the public reacted to it, you know, really seeing something they hadn't seen before. The animation style, I think, set it apart to a huge degree and really gave it that comic book feel that just less smooth, more kind of you could read the, uh, the poses and just the, uh, the action a lot more clearly. Yeah, and, and, and we're thrilled with where it ended up and how it looks, but it'd be fun to show people all the early tests because we really did take a lot of wrong turns and, and tried a lot of different things that are kind of fun to show just how many things we tried. And we have a lot of these things. <laughs> <laughs> what can you tell us about some of these early tests? What did they consist of? Yeah, one of the first sets we built was this subway station. And we, we built it, we looked at it, we textured it, and we ran a subway train through it. And we kind of used this environment as our test bed for things. So in there, we learned what depth of field looked like, what a rack focus looked like, you know, how a train going by, if we're going to use motion blur or if it's going to be stroby when it goes by. Even we, we kind of panned a camera across really quickly just to see how stroby the background might be with a quick camera pan. But yeah, a lot of our testing was in there and uh, we were able to learn a lot. And then as we kind of built out the world, we kind of refined and kept testing. And a lot of it is just iteration after iteration after test after test is how we really found the look. Yeah. And actually with every one of those tests, people, whether it was with the camera work or whether it was with the lighting testing, the mandate was still to show something that as an artist they had never done before and to try to push it to a point where it, it had clearly gone too far. Because sometimes we ended up finding something that, that looked really interesting and it was not obvious that it would work. And it, and it came out of just trying to break things. Yeah, one, one method that really worked is we, we would create a ton of versions, almost like menu items, so they could choose what they liked about each, each individual thing. We spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to make Peter look like uh, how everyone wanted. So we did flat versions and versions with more shading and versions with more half toning and, you know, different looks for the hair. And we must have done at least a hundred versions of this one pose. But through that, we were able to kind of see what worked and what didn't. And then we could kind of use them as menu items to put them together into a recipe that created the look that we wanted. And actually, one of the funny things about this, this these tests and all the these menu items Mike, Mike's talking about, they were all in the spirit of keeping the characters very stylized and simple. And those early tests are when we discovered that the reason the illustrations worked was because although the characters were simple and stylized, the expressions on the face and the emotion was drawn with lines. And that's not a part of the model. I mean, it's separate from the underlying shapes and it doesn't have to follow the underlying form. And that's when we discovered that we needed or wanted to draw lines on characters and be able to make those lines expressive and different from the underlying shape that we would shade. And so animation draws these lines uh, with, with line weight and it, it, the way that an illustrator would draw them. They're then turned into geometry that can be rigged, so it can also be animated. And you, you really do have sort of the best of all worlds where you have a three-dimensional version of what an illustrator would draw. Yeah, the line tool work was really extensive. Uh, we at first built a lot of the lines into the model. And then animation, like Danny was saying, uh, we were able to rig a bunch of the lines. And then animation also was able to draw lines more freeform. And the effects team used uh, machine learning to teach the lines how to adhere to certain poses of the face. So we really, we created lines in multiple departments. And when we kind of put them all together in lighting, we were able to tell where the lines were coming from. And we were able to kind of set up standards for how they were treated in, in the comp. But the work that, that animation did and what effects did, effects built a, a whole tool uh, from scratch devoted to this. It really created a handcrafted feel because a lot of these lines were put in there by hand, frame by frame and drawn like you would draw on a, on a piece of paper. Combining that with our render stylization really brought that handcraftedness through. Yeah, there's, there's, there's actually an interesting point there where this, I think, unique from other movies that I've worked on, the development that, that went into all of our tools and all the innovation that we came up with, most of that went towards trying to allow the artist to be more of an artist, to, to allow them to draw, design, 
let their handwork show as quickly as possible. So that's an interesting point about what the technology and the innovation was for. It was definitely the most artistic movie I ever worked on. And the artists really responded to it. I mean, they were so into it. Everyone was so enthusiastic and they, I mean, they really felt like they had their own personal touch on it. Once they wrapped their heads around it. There was definitely a learning curve coming onto the show. Yeah. Uh, You know, people coming from other shows, other facilities, it was, it was so different that they really had to, we had extensive training yeah. when they came on. Are you using off-the-shelf tools? Uh, do you build your own in-house, or is it both? We use pretty standard software as a base. Like um, we animate within Maya, which is pretty much an industry standard. But all of our rigs are uh, are proprietary. There's a lot of specific innovation and uh, technology from Sony ImageWorks exclusively. Certainly, even on top of that, there was a lot of new tools written specifically for this show. So even though everything is really based on industry standard tools, there's so much built on top of it that you can pretty much call it proprietary or, or specific to ImageWorks. Yeah, typically on every show, we develop you know a, a number of tools on top of what we're getting in Maya or any other software that we're using. Um, this one was just to the next level <laughs> with the amount of new things that we needed to do. But we've got a really good uh, dev department and a lot of good tool writers here that um, every show kind of gets that to some degree. I'd like to get into the structure of your quote unquote camera department in animation. This is called layout. Yeah. And at what point in the production process do they begin their work? So the traditional structure is to have sort of a rough layout in early production or before we go into full production where we're dealing mostly with the artwork and we're, and we're making assets. There's often a pre visualization step if it's a very complicated sequence where like let's say it's a very complicated fight scene or a chase scene we might do a full pre-visualization including temporary models that may be be redone if it's less complicated we'll at least do scouting passes where we can validate the size and the placement of uh, of, of models and and that and so that's kind of a traditional workflow on this show, we wanted to be more flexible than that because when you look at, again, what's special about illustration is the way perspective is uh, toyed with and bent. And, and so a few quick examples of that are when you look at New York City for impact, when Miles jumps off the building, the buildings are all oriented around him in, in like a, a circular pattern and it radiates away from him. It has much more visual impact. In addition to that, buildings are skewed in perspective so that we either get them to, to have more perspective or less perspective or be orthogonal to like whatever feels right from a comic book point of view. So when you look at the, the layout with, say, a witness camera, the layout looks pretty ridiculous. It doesn't look right at all. Buildings are, are at weird angles. They're not on a grid. New York looks ridiculous. But from the point of view of the camera, the way you would illustrate, it looks amazing. And so, you know, those are, those are some of the things that were very different about what we did with layout. I don't have numbers for the exact number of people, but certainly on this show, I think we had a higher percentage in rough layout, which is where we assemble the uh, structure of the shot so that animation can uh, work with it. And, I, and that was a much more inventive and flexible process than, than, than any other show I've worked on. Yeah, the amount of layout that, that had to be done, especially in the city scenes, I mean, we built 150 unique buildings for Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Queens, and just laying out these shots so the, the directors could get the composition they wanted and the angle they wanted. I mean, we had, I think, 20 unique cars to create an entire city of animated cars uh, driving around. I mean, the amount of just assets in general was just mind-blowing. So Mike talked about 150 buildings, which, which is a lot, but not only were, was, were there 150 buildings, they were also very modular. So layout could pull them apart, change them, scale them, put them on top of each other. So there are some scenes where the uh, height of the buildings in, in New York are literally five times what they should be. 
just because it has the visual impact that we wanted. Which I think was done in the scene you were describing. Yeah. When Miles jumps off the side of the building, you see that radial pattern of buildings below. Yeah. There are buildings piled on top of each other like three times to give it that really enhanced perspective. We came up with a whole stylized way to create window interiors based on uh, brush strokes and just what you see in the art for depth. It just created a more naturalistic feel in the city. But like we were saying, layout-wise, I mean, uh, just really a ton to deal with in, in the city to really make it look natural but get the artistic angles that they were looking for. And also abstract. Mike talked about the interior of, of the buildings. The further away buildings are, the more abstract they are. Uh, depending on what role the buildings are, they can be very stylized and abstract. And that, again, just fed into the whole idea that we were more concerned about how would you illustrate it? What, what would it feel like if you were to approach every shot from a design point of view? And, you know, that meant an incredible flexibility for the amount of geometry, the complexity of that geometry, and then how stylized it was actually rendered. Yeah, because we uh, were able to render uh, most of the geometry that we need to without having to use map painting. Typically for the city scenes, we actually had all of our real buildings as far back as we could go. We, we did map painting for some of the furthest away shots, but even in those, we would still lay out rough geometry that we'd project onto and do two and a half D map paintings. But typically for the composition, uh, we would play with atmosphere. We, you know, to, we would play with kind of saturation levels and depth to really sell the scale of the city. Art and design. <laughs> Going back to what you said about breaking down and reinventing the process of making an animated film, how did that affect your approach to cinematography, such as it is? So that's a good question, because we, we definitely reconsidered cinematography from a, from a comic book point of view. Like, what would be different about this? What is special to telling a story like a comic book? Uh, I want to talk a little bit about multi-panels and, and how to tell story through the panels, because that affected the way that we planned shots. But we knew that there's lens effects that are a part of cinematography. That is racking focus, for example. Where, where, where are you going to put the attention of the viewer? Uh, one of the things that we did that we think is inventive and in the style of the way you you would print a comic book is when we were studying the old comic books, sometimes we came across comic books that weren't printed properly. The color passes were misregistered. And so it gave this effect of the image looking like it's out of focus. And one of the things you'll see in the movie is we took that to our camera lenses and we decided that when the camera goes out of focus, it's not going to be a traditional camera lens that goes out of focus the way you'd expect with just a blur. Again, we were trying to avoid blur because it's not something that illustrators use. They don't use soft grads. So in our world, when the camera goes out of focus, what you see is a misregistration of uh, the image. It feels like it's going out of focus because the, the color layers are splitting apart the way print may look when it's misregistered. And that was one of the things that, that we thought worked well in those early tests. Yeah, it was an idea that we had that we weren't sure was going to work or not, <laughs> but it actually it, it achieved being able to create that like an out of focus feel just by like doing a slight image shift. You know, as Danny said, having the channel separation and we connected that to how the focus has changed so we could actually do a rack focus and you could see, you know, the, the shift kind of come together into the focus region and then go out as it left the focus region and we're able to, to hook it up into our camera in the composite so it could be done naturally. And it was a really cool effect to see it in an actual rack. We use all real camera data, just like real cameras. Our layout department really tries to mimic how real camera work is done in the real world, in our virtual world. So, and that's what I've always liked at our facility where I always feel like the camera work really looks grounded in reality. And it doesn't give you a CG feel. They typically try to mimic what real cameras can do. And actually, sometimes the only way to do that is to actually shoot through a handheld camera. So we we do have a proprietary system here. And, you know, there's a lot of places that uh, I'll probably do this, but but we've been doing it since the early days of like Surf's Up, where there are times where we'll, we will load the whole scene in there. And uh, we have a uh, camera rig with a real camera where you're looking through the camera and you're, you're in the actual Maya scene. 
and you're doing the uh, camera work with a real handheld camera. So we didn't throw away techniques that would still suit the story. We just wanted to add the extra layers and the extra parts of uh, cinematography that would that that are unique to uh, telling a, a comic book story. Another thing that was added in there from from the point of view of that storytelling was uh, thought bubbles, word bubbles, uh, text within the scene, and there's there's a variety of different composition choices to be made when you're doing that. And then I talked a little bit about the uh, panels. Panels are 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 definitely used in the movie to tell parts of the story the way a comic would tell it, in which there really is no other way to get the same feel, whether it's showing people's reactions to each other, but also across panels. So there's this like tongue in cheek play where there is a, a specific shot where within this big fight in Aunt May's house, uh, Aunt May's in a center panel and there's all this action around her. Not only is she reacting to the action, but she's reacting to it within panels. Like she's looking across from one panel to another. And that's kind of an interesting comic book way to tell a story. And the planning required in something like a complicated fight sequence when you're introducing uh, multi-panels at the same time, that definitely puts an extra burden on how your rough layout is set up. Yeah, I think what most people may not realize is every time you have a panel, it's actually another shot, which led to us having, I think, the most shots we've ever had in an animated feature. I think it was about 2,700, 2,800 shots. Yeah. And especially with those text bubbles, because animation sometimes would interact with them, we actually had to track them all the way up through the pipeline. So starting in rough layout, we would have representations of these text bubbles. And sometimes they would be in 3D space. Like there's a, a sequence where Miles is running down the street, calling his Uncle Aaron, and you see the text bubbles going back in depth, intermingling with the structures behind him. So, you know, you'd have to kind of have everything from early on so every department could see it and interact with it. And actually, that's another interesting thing. Mike, Mike talked about all these various things going on at the same time and how many pieces have, have to come together. Another thing that's unique about this movie, based on all the things happening at the same time, is it requires the pipeline, which is typically pretty linear, to be much more fluid and much more improvisational. Because there were lots of times where something wasn't working in a shot and then we'd make a choice, well, this needs another panel, or or these are the wrong panels, or let's put pow text in there, or a bang, or or whatever. So there's there's a real improvisational aspect to getting all the stuff to work. Yeah, Danny was talking about lens effects earlier. We, uh, we did a lot with flares, like um, anytime you see a subway train go by, we came up with a really cool looking lens flare that was actually concentric circles. So in every aspect, we wanted to stay away from softness. So we came up like you'd, like you'd see on headlights of cars or lights up on like the church and the cemetery. We came up with a, with a very stylized looking flare to the lens, but it maintained the hard edge shapes. And we would have the shapes move very naturally as the camera moved. You'd see the, the, the concentric circles kind of shift so it looked like a real flare. Were your virtual lenses based on any real-world design? Um, well, everything's rooted in a real-world lens. Like, for example, we're still using the same perspective. Like, if you're shooting through a wide-angle lens, we, we would still have anywhere from, I don't know, for the widest lenses, maybe, maybe an 8 or a 12 for the crazy stuff up to like a 28. So the behavior of the lens is still rooted in a real lens, but there's always uh, perspective distortion and stylizing of of the uh, way the lighting is treated so that it feels more more comic book. I would say that the playing with perspective, distorting the uh, objects so that they look like they could be drawn in a, as as opposed to just the way a lens captures geometry in the real world. That that's what that's where it was a little more um, stylized and and I think takes on that comic book feel. Yeah, because when you're in the computer, you don't get like the lens imperfections. You have to invent them to look like them. And and one other thing is that what Danny was saying, the, uh, the camera distortion on the edge of the frame, we kind of played around for a while as not having that because not having that, we thought maybe would make it look more graphic. In the end, we, we had it to some degree, but just being able to have complete control over everything like that, it freed us up to kind of right. come up with a look that worked. Right. But, but, 
one of the things we, we chose not to do is to make the lens cinematic in the sense that you know how sometimes you will look to mimic a real lens, like this is an anamorphic lens. It's got anamorphic flare. It's got a certain uh, distorting to it. We left that out of it because, again, it doesn't lend itself to the feeling of a comic book. Illustrators don't draw a specific lens type. They're very concerned about how that perspective plays into the emotion. Right. But let's say you have the equivalent of a 100 millimeter anamorphic lens. As far as depth of field is concerned, does the offset that you're using to render the depth of field still follow the optical qualities of an actual lens? Like, so, would it be affected by the distance to the subject or a T-stop? So we, we off the bat, when we have, when we do a render, we, we have the, we get the proper depth of field that we want right off the bat based on what the lens is. Typically on the CG features, we typically adjust it because a lot of times it's art directed to, you know, to have more in focus or less in focus. But based on the lens, once it gets into the composite with our depth of field setup, we do get the proper amount of defocus based on the lens. I mean, we always start there, but I would say that more than any other movie that, that I've worked on, we break from that. So lenses do not behave the way you, you would expect if you're talking about traditional cinematic lensing. And, and that's, that's on purpose because, again, when you think of how illustrators do their version of it, they may choose to make something more decontrasted as opposed to out of focus. Because again, the making something soft in illustration is not really an, uh, an illustration technique. So we often use um, atmospheric effects and lack of contrast as a focus mechanism more than, more than we uh, would the lens. And, I think the short answer is we're we're definitely using lenses in an illustrated way, and they don't behave the way you would expect a real lens to behave. But like Mike said, we're always checking it against what a lens would do. So we do have the ability to see and make our own choices away from uh, what it would normally do. And we do live action VFX here, so we have you know we're we're used to matching cameras and getting the proper focus to line up with plates and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, with the CG animated films, we're able to kind of break free of that and go more art directed. But in a really important creative way, once we made the, the decision that our animation style was going to avoid motion blur and it was going to be stepped animation, which means it's not it's not fluid. It, it's not splined per frame. Animation can hold frames for either two frames at a time or three frames and mix and match. Once we made those two decisions to not have motion blur, and to have this stepped animation style. And actually the reason that we did that was through all of our testing, that was the thing that felt closest to what an animated uh, comic book would be because it really enforces the specific poses. It really enforces key moments. Once we made that decision, cinematography and the way lenses worked had to also in some way break, meaning they had to go away from the realism so that you're kind of matching wrong for wrong. <laughs> and that's another expression that we came up with on the show. If, you, if we do enough things wrong, it'll look right. So we would look for these, these things that were wrong from a traditional sense or wrong from an accuracy point of view, but had the right feeling for how something would be illustrated. And if we were very consistent about this, and that's another thing, we came up with rules and we were very consistent about it. So the way the camera behaves, the way light behaves, it takes a little while to get used to the movie, but there is a very consistent language that I think uh, people fall into. And that's part of the reason that it works is that there is a consistent language. You also changed the way motion blurring is rendered with speed lines, which is another carryover from comic books. That's one of the things, yeah. And those speed lines uh, were done in a variety of ways. In our first test scene, what we discovered is for geometric objects like a train or, or uh, buildings, those could be built into the model. And the length of those lines that, uh, could, be, could be determined by the speed of the train or the look that we wanted. But then animation through those drawing tools could add speed lines at any point. And uh, animation also for characters was able to distort the models in a way that if you pause on a frame, the model itself is very stretched and odd looking per frame, but it feels really good when it's moving. And they even used additional limbs. So like if you pause on some frames, you'll see in a chaotic fight scene, multiple limbs and, and uh, broken models. And 
it's pretty playful, but it, it feels correct when it's moving. Yeah, I think we had one shot where we saw the eyeballs out of the head yeah. <laughs> trailing the body. So there, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of funny frames in there. Some other things we did since the, we didn't have motion blur, sometimes you would get a little bit of strobiness. And if we sensed that, we would either kind of do a slight shift on, on the character just to give it a little bit of a softening in motion. Or um, in shots like in the school, when the whole background is, is circling by really fast, we came up with this kind of smearing effect in the background where it still maintained all its hard edges, but it kind of took the curse off the strobiness. And in some shots, we were able to work in screen tones into that too. So we kind of, it all lent itself to the language that we really came up with. We tried to keep everything within the same visual language. So you see Miles going invisible, it's made up of dots. You see the glitching happen, you see kind of dots and lines of nose. So, you know, we tried to kind of give everything a uniform uh, language. Talking about the way the camera moves, with a few exceptions, there's a clearly deliberate and grounded sense of placement and composition. Like, just because you can take the camera anywhere doesn't mean that you do. I'm really glad that you picked up on that. In general, coming from the comic book world, it, it really is rooted in the framing. And we want it to be less flexible with the camera the way that you might be in, say, a game or in other CG movies where the camera is free to to sort of be anything it wants to. We wanted to impose a little bit of a physicalness to the camera, and not necessarily from a realism point of view, but from the aesthetic of comic books, where it really is more about the framing than it is the movement of it. And, and I think that that grounded in reality aspect of it kind of helped the story and the characters along where you really believe them. Like you, you, someone told me they felt like they forgot they were looking at an animated movie by the end. Like you, you just were watching the characters. And I think the fact that the camera was not calling attention to itself, it was what you'd kind of expected in to some degree from a live action film really helped that part of it. Yeah. I would say the camera was subservient or, or the camera was there to serve composition and design first and foremost. One of my favorite scenes in the film was the one between Miles and Peter on the side of Uncle Aaron's apartment building, where you have this vertically oriented camera in setups that create the illusion of a horizontal plane. It's a fun visual choice, but it also keeps you engaged in the dramatic line of action. So instead of looking up at them or from a perpendicular angle, because they're walking along the side of the building, what would be upright to the audience standing on the ground, you're in the conversation, in singles and over the shoulders with them. Yeah, that's another example where if we go back to some of our themes in, in uh, working on this is uh, looking at every scene and, and trying to see if there's a different way to do it. That's either either more specific to the way you would do it in animation or in this case, specific to our uh, characters, because what what that scene is, is it's it's kind of the uh, typical you're going to have a walking through New York scene. So. What if we chose to do the typical walking through New York more special and specific to our characters? Well, they'd still be strolling through New York, but they're able to walk sideways. So kind of like the upside down shot when Miles was falling with the city beneath him. You know, it's just kind of like, yes, you know, just flipping the camera over. Yeah. Miles falling, but he's falling uh, upwards. Know. That conveys the spirit of that shot, which is that he's rising up. How did you break down and reinvent your approach to lighting? You know, typically how, what our pipeline is, is once we get into rough layout, we provide the art department with frames and they paint over and they give us lighting keys just so we know kind of the, the color temperature, the light direction, everything they're looking for. You know, off the bat, we've actually lit things for a lot of them. We pretty realistically how we typically light with our renderer. I kind of felt like we wanted all the detail in there from the get go. So then once we had it all, we could take it out. So, you know, we're using all of the typical lights. We typically use spotlights, point lights to stimulate light bulbs, big quad lights that are like big screens. For the city scenes, we had to actually invent new lights to light the buildings. They were kind of like these, these huge lights that would cast parallel rays so you could get really sharp up shadows on the buildings, even with massive light sources. But we lit it pretty much like how we typically do but then we were able to kind of scale things back. When we were first figuring out how we were going to light it, at first we thought we just would want all the shadows to be sharp, which in some of the sequences they are, like when Miles is on top of the, 
the, the subway tunnel and the trains going underneath them and it's flashing all these really sharp shadows. But we did have sequences where we did have soft, more naturalistic lighting, like when Miles is getting chased through Aunt May's house. You know, they, they wanted kind of like a, a, a very moody, naturalistic light feel. So we mixed a lot of different types of lighting, but then once we applied our style to it, we were able to kind of push it around and find what we wanted. But having all that initial detail in there was was really the, the process that we used. And that kind of rooted us in knowing what the real answer was so that we, again, could make the choices that we wanted to. But the stylizing was actually really important because when Mike talks about how we we wanted to have soft shadows and hard shadows, the difference, if you look, is often when we have soft shadows, we're using uh, overlapping hard shadows so that they're not in sync. So you've got like multiple sort of overlapping shadows the way they, again, the way you might illustrate. There's always this attempt to avoid anything smooth, uh, like the typical ambient occlusion that you that you might get or the soft shadows in the corners. Everything is replaced with either hatching for the shadows or in the case of the uh, outer edges of a cast shadow, you'll you'll see it either broken up by lines or multiple shadows of uh, different transparencies lining up so that it feels soft. There's always a stylizing to it that that it never does look like it's just lit, and that was important because again we talked about how the animation isn't right. <laughs> the uh, the camera work is not right. And so this uh, lighting's not right. And, you know, I say that as a joke. All of them are, are, are wrong in their creative ways. And together, it just works. Yeah, the type of effect that Danny's talking about, you can really see when Miles has his flashlight and he's walking down into the tunnels and he's shining the light on things. You can see that as the light falls in the shadow, you see just like overlapping hard shapes. And that was one method we used that really, it worked a lot in some cases. And in other cases, like Danny said, we would layer in our screen tones to kind of take replace the soft uh, fall off of light. Yeah, and 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 sometimes we we wouldn't push it far enough. And I I can still remember Phil Lord sometimes seeing something that that looked a little too familiar, or if we weren't risking enough, he would say uh, it it doesn't look stupid enough. <laughs> and um, that became like a like a little term for us to to use too. Stupid to us meant that it looks like when you're first looking at it, it's maybe not what you expect. It's maybe not understood. If it was too traditional, it wasn't stupid enough. The different Spideys reflect light in different ways depending on the universe that they're from. What can you reveal to us about these characters' unique reflective properties? Yeah, so we, we actually lit all the characters together so they all lived under the same lights in the same scene. It was really the only way that we'd be able to really buy that they were all together. So they're all casting shadows on each other. But every character had a, their own recipe, especially um, when you're talking about Penny Parker or Spider Noir or SBDR. Once they were rendered, we uh, either applied their look dev standards, which uh, were made up of different material qualities. So for Penny, she would become very flattened out. We quantized every character, but she was to the most degree to kind of get that anime look. So where her whole face is kind of one tone, and then she'd have very sharp shadows. Spider-Noir also, I mean, he was kind of the most contrasted character. Either he'd be really, really, really dark and have very sharp white highlights and just a gray tone or two in between broken up by screen tones. Peter and Miles were... I don't know if you'd call it traditional, but in the sense of our movie, they were the most traditionally lit. But then these other characters just kind of had their own style that was built in. Yeah, I mean, Peter and Miles are are, are really, I guess Peter, Miles, and Gwen, uh, when she's in the world with Miles, the three of them are uh, spend a lot of time together. And so they're, they're more integrated into the look of Miles' My, world. The other three characters, Mike talked about uh, Penny and Noir and... Spider-Ham, they are much more of a Roger Rabbit style. They don't quite fit the world. Uh, we definitely wanted to make sure that they fit enough so that they're believable and interact uh, with the other characters. But because they come from different Spider-Verses that are very different, it was a fun choice. It gave us the opportunity to uh, really push their looks in very different ways. Some of my favorite shots, actually, they look very simple, but they're so nicely designed uh, when we go into Noir's world and, and, and we see him at home in his Spider-Verse, the simplicity of that just black and white 
And it's actually really beautiful see, to see in stereo too. It's pushed really far. And that's maybe one of the purest examples of how if you can get the design to work really beautifully, you can forego a lot of complexity and it's still a really beautiful shot. Yeah, one thing we found was all you needed were cues of complexity here and there. And then you could get away with, with kind of more simplistic areas. With screen tones especially, like if you saw dots very strongly in one section of the frame, you wouldn't need it to be really heavily handed all over the frame as long as you saw it here and there. But, uh, but yeah, Penny, Penny was probably the biggest departure out of all the characters. I think she was the most 2D, like her mouth was really just a, a couple of planes piled on top of each other, flat planes that looked like a 2D mouth that we rendered, but there was no actual mouth cavity inside of her head. And then there's the Kingpin, oh, who's yeah. rendered <laughs> a, in a very different way than pretty much anyone else in the rest of the film. He's like a black hole. He, he's, he, he's so imposing that he's just this incredible black shape that overwhelms you just because there's actually no shading on him. Yeah, the only the way we were able to light him was if you look, he gets these rims on his shoulders and on the, on the side of his arms. And that's really the only actual lighting on his body. We have these, these lines on his lapel that we could alter based on the lighting direction. But other than his shirt and his skin, yeah, he, he was just a void. But it was a really, it was a really great, great tool for composition, having that, because he was almost like a framing device. One of the things that stood out for me was this sense that we weren't just looking at the characters in this world. You can actually see and feel the world moving around the characters. And that, and that was a conscious thing, like, especially like an atmosphere, like you see light cones from lamps on the street where we have screen tones in the atmosphere. And we wanted to avoid having anything stuck down. So a lot of times we just have the screen tones drifting or, or they'd be in screen space and they, and they wouldn't stick to things. So it kind of gave it a living quality just right off the bat like that. But I think one of the things you're responding to is also the fact that um, if you pause on virtually any frame, you can sit there and, and you can look at these frames in a way that uh, in most traditional animation done uh, because of motion blur specifically and, and, and because of other aggressive choices of putting things out of focus, there's, there's kind of less to look at. Uh, and again, that's an intentional creative choice that when you look at illustration, you can spend time with the images and kind of look around. And I think one of the things that you're responding to is the fact that with all that design and without motion blur, Every frame is kind of like a comic book frame. The climax of the film takes place inside of Kingpin's particle accelerator, where you have all of the different universes spilling out and crashing into one another. This thing is basically deconstructing the fabric of reality. Was this an opportunity to deconstruct your own creative framework? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it kind of culminates with combining so many of the ideas in the movie. Even the idea that, that as the universe is collapsing, it's breaking into these giant Kirby dots. Uh, those uh, Kirby dots, for example, are a design choice to combine the ideas of the particle beam, all the half-toning that we're doing. Uh, Jack Kirby used these dots so much in his illustration. There's like so many layers to it. And then they're also really allowed things to get much more, much more abstract. But for the final battle... It's about Miles and uh, Kingpin. And so everything has now kind of collapsed around them, and it's just them. I mean, it, everything is encroaching now. Everything is, Miles can't even get away. We're surrounded in this, in this world where the collider has basically destroyed everything, and it's just the two of them. And it's really kind of a, like, almost like a grand finale for the style of the film. It's kind of been building up to it. And it's basically everything we've come up with for the movie kind of being thrown together, every, yeah. every style. And it's just like, it, it, yeah, everything just kind of comes together and it's, it's kind of nuts. It's kind of cool how it features them too. Cause like when, when you think about it in all the final battles before it's just Miles and uh, Kingpin, you're kind of ramping up color. It's getting more intense. It's getting more crazy. And then, and then, you know, you, you go past crazy to 11 and then 11 is actually just quieting it down to 
prepare and isolate just those two characters. And it's a nice way to set up where Miles does the uh, shoulder touch, because that shoulder touch now has so much impact when it's coming out of just blackness. And the interesting thing is a lot of our tools kind of evolved over the course of the show. So a lot of them, we, we just kind of improving them and improving them. And we have this one tool that first we used for the look of skin, and then we used it to create Gwen's world. And then at the end of the movie, it was used in the overall look of the final battle. So as there's like our tools kind of evolved along with the story to the end. So it was all just very organic. There's certainly parts of me that thinks, let's do another one. We, we, we uh, spent so much time figuring out what would work and what would be cool in this language. It's uh, kind of that expression. Uh, um, you only know how to make the film once you've already made it. <laughs> yeah. And, and honestly, it, it was such a cool project, but it was very hard. And I would always tell the artist that I, I was supervising, it's the hard that makes it so good. You know, if it was easy, it would not look as cool. And we had another term, it, inconsistency is this film's consistency. So because of the handcraftedness, you'd have an inconsistency per shot, but it would still hold together in, under the same language. I think one of this film's great strengths is its commitment to doing something different. And it makes me wonder, if you got the chance to do a sequel would it look like this one, or would you try to do something different again? Yeah, well, okay, so I'm super glad that you asked that question, because one of the things I think is really great about having having made this movie is the idea that this is just a freeing up to do different things. So let's say that there was a sequel. I'm not even as concerned about whether or not that would be as good. It could be different. What this movie, I think, hopefully shows to people is that you can do different things. You can, you can kind of push things to a place where if the design supports the story, if it's consistent enough in your rules that it, it does behave like an actual world, you can be really inventive. I'm really excited about the idea that what if we go spend some time in Noir's universe or Penny's or even Spider-Ham's. I mean, Spider-Ham's would be pretty wacky. So I just get really excited about the idea that this could open doors to, you know, animation being a technique, a technique that, that allows you complete freedom. You know, not a genre, but a technique. Yeah, that's one thing Phil always says. Animation isn't a genre, it's a medium. And a lot of these tools that we built were already evolving. And, it, and, it, and I see it just more, I think Danny said it, as freeing the artists up to just be more creative. And this is kind of like a jumping off point for our ability to do that. So whether we wanna make these tools more illustrative or more graphic, or it just, now that we have a kind of a foundation, you know, as a studio, we, we have the ability to kind of be really, really creative and take more chances. But I'm with you, Ian. I mean, I would wanna do, let's, let's see what the next cool thing is. Let's do something different again. That was visual effects supervisor Danny Dimian and CG supervisor Michael Lasker talking about their work on Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts and articles about the art and craft of cinematography on the American Cinematographer website at ASCMag.com. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.